Uh, you know, Sean introduced himself. It dawned on me. I, I didn't introduce myself. There are some visitors here. My name's Larry Lazarus. I'm one of the elders here. I have the privilege of preaching from the scriptures. If you're visiting with us, we'd love to meet you after the service. Um, it is good to gather together. And at the top of your order of worship, uh, you see there it says, we have gathered this morning. Jeff said this at the beginning of our service. We've gathered this morning to worship the God of truth. And uh, we, we, we have something like that each week. We, we try to take a particular characteristic or truth about God from the text of Scripture that is going to be preached on, and we, we try to structure the service around that so it brings some cohesiveness to our time together. Uh, if you've not been aware that we've been doing that, that's why we, we do that. Um, but, you know, I was thinking about it this week, and really we could put that, that banner at the top of our order of worship. It could equally read this morning, we have gathered this morning to worship Jesus Christ because he is unsearchably awesome. Uh, we could put that up there. And we could put that up there every week. Every Lord's Day until Jesus comes and we're wrapped up with all of the saints for all time in that heavenly praise. We could put it there at the top of our order of worship. We have gathered this morning to worship Jesus Christ because he is unsearchably awesome. He is, just think about what we've considered already as we've studied the Gospel of John in the past couple of years. He is the eternal word who was made flesh and who dwelt among us so that we have beheld the Father's eternal glory in Christ. He's the light of the world. Uh, he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He is the great and unchangeable I am. Even before Abraham was, Jesus says, I am. He is the resurrection and the life so that all who believe in him should never see or taste death. He's the one to whom we come to find living water for our weary and thirsty souls. He's the bread of life who nourishes and satisfies the hungry heart. He is the way and the truth and the life. He is the one who, who walks on water. He turns water into wine. He cleanses lepers and he heals the lame and he opens the eyes of the blind and he causes the deaf to hear and storms to cease and the dead to rise with just a single word, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man rises from the grave. We could spend hours and hours and hours, days and weeks and years indeed, we will spend an eternity admiring and exploring and expositing the excellencies of Jesus Christ. His riches truly are unsearchable. And so given all that, given how amazing and how unsearchably rich Jesus is, do you find it surprising that Jesus would actually say to his disciples that it would be better for them if he was to go away from them. Did you notice that in the passage that, that Sean read to us a couple of minutes ago? Uh, we're returning after a few weeks in Genesis. We're returning back to our study of John's gospel. And so remember, uh, in these chapters, beginning in John 13, really through John 17, uh, we're seeing... Jesus in a very intimate time with his disciples, giving them final words of instruction and comfort in preparation for his departure from the world. He would soon be betrayed and crucified 
and then resurrected and then ascend to heaven. And so he was going away from his disciples and he's speaking words to comfort them, to give them hope. But we see here in the passage, they're still sorrowful. He's telling them not to be troubled. Don't be afraid. He says that in John chapter 14. But they here, we're told in John 16, they are sorrowful in their hearts. Uh, kids, uh, could you imagine what it would feel like if, if your parents told you that they were going to be going away for a very long time? You would see them again, but it would be a long time before you would see them again. You you would probably be sorrowful. You might not understand why. Why do you have to go? Well, that's maybe a little picture of how Jesus' disciples were, were feeling this evening as Jesus was speaking to them. And it's in this context where Jesus says these very remarkable words in verse 7 of John 16. If your Bible, if you've shut your Bible, I'd encourage you to keep your Bible open so that you can follow along with me as we consider God's word this morning. Verse 7, Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. So they're sorrowful. He's going away. They don't understand. Their hearts are sorrowful. He says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, we have been introduced already in John's gospel to this helper. Chapter 14, chapter 15, uh, he's clearly the Holy Spirit, the, the third member of the Trinity. And Jesus says to his disciples back then in the first century, and I would understand it to be still true for us today, until that time when Jesus does make his bodily return and dwells among us forever, until that time, our situation is very much like the disciples in the first century. He has gone away from us, and he tells them that it is better for them that he be physically absent from them so that he would send the Holy Spirit to indwell them. Jesus says it is better for us now to have the Spirit living in us than to have Jesus himself living among us. Do you believe that? I wonder if you believe that. I wonder if perhaps you're thinking, I know I'm supposed to believe that because it is there in the Bible. I just heard you read it, and it does say that, and I believe that's God's word, but... I'm not really sure how that could be, how it would be better to have the Holy Spirit than to not have Jesus physically among us. Well, the words that follow in this passage explain to us why it is to our advantage. Jesus says it is to our advantage, it is to our benefit that he go away physically in order to send the Spirit as the helper because of the Spirit's ministry in the world. We see that in verses 8 through 11. And because of his ministry in the church, we see that in verses 12 to 15. He will convict the world. We see that in verses 8 to 11. He will speak in the church. That is what we see in verses 12 to 15. That's what we want to think about this morning. And as we do, I, I pray that you would come to know and love and praise the Holy Spirit with, with deepened joy and reverence. It is good, Jesus says, that he go away and that he send the Spirit to you because when the Spirit comes, he will exercise a powerful 
ministry in the world. We read about it there in verses 8 to 11. Look there again at the text. And when he comes, speaking of the helper, who we know to be the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, that is just one sentence, and there is an awful lot packed in to that one sentence. I believe that when Jesus is speaking of the ministry of conviction, he's not describing conviction the way you and I might think of the word conviction in a courtroom sense today. When we think of, a, of someone on trial and there is a conviction, we understand that to be a, a sentence of guilty and some kind of punishment or condemnation that follows. I don't think that is what Jesus is speaking of when he speaks of the Holy Spirit convicting the world of sin. I believe this conviction is one that is meant to lead to repentance and faith in the world and therefore adoption into God's family. That seems to be the work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus draws attention to when he breathes the Holy Spirit onto these very disciples at the end of John's gospel in chapter 20 after the resurrection. Jesus said to them, this is John chapter 20, verse 21, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So the the Holy Spirit is empowering these disciples for a mission of salvation. They would proclaim the good news of forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus. And we see the Holy Spirit performing this, this ministry in a very dramatic way on the day of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit brings deep conviction that leads to conversion among a great number of people who'd gathered there on the day of Pentecost. Peter, it says on that day when the disciples were were baptized in the Holy Spirit, Peter got up and he proclaimed a powerful message preaching Jesus as the Messiah, the one in whom forgiveness of sins is found, the one who has risen from the dead to demonstrate that he is God's anointed Messiah. And we're told at the end of this sermon when they heard this, when those, that crowd that was gathered, this is Acts 2.37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. I think that's that ministry of conviction the Holy Spirit is working in them. They were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And because of that ministry of the Holy Spirit, those men and women and children, all who the Lord would call to himself, they were cut to the heart, and 3,000 people on that day received Peter's word, and they were baptized. And yet we know 
We can give no praise to Peter for that, right? We, we've been acquainted with Peter in the Gospel of John. We know this was not Peter's doing. This was the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the work that Jesus promised his disciples would happen when he departed from them and sent the Holy Spirit. And this passage in Acts chapter 2, I think, vividly depicts that activity of the Spirit, that when he comes, he would convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. We see there, as I said, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. They, under, they had a sting in their conscience, understanding, testifying against them that they had, even as we sang a few minutes ago, that they had hopelessly lost the way. That's the conviction that the Holy Spirit brings. The conviction that Paul described in Titus chapter 3. We ourselves Have you known the conviction of the Holy Spirit in this way? I'm asking you. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. If you've seen that about yourself, that you have been wrong in going your own way, hopelessly lost the way, that is the fruit of the Spirit's ministry. That that ministry is needed because people have not believed in Jesus, he says in verse 8. If they believed in Jesus, then they would freely and joyfully come to Jesus and obtain forgiveness and cleansing, even as we were reminded earlier from 1 Peter chapter 1. But because they have not believed in him, they stand condemned and they need this convicting work in order that they might be pierced with the awareness of their sin and turn to Jesus and be forgiven. A part of that convicting work is also the conviction of righteousness. He will convict the world, the spirit, of righteousness. That seems an odd thing to say. Like, I understand being convicted of sin. How, why would we be convicted of righteousness? Well, I, I think what Jesus is referring to here is that kind of righteousness that we actually prayed aloud together from Isaiah 64. Not, not the righteousness that is found through faith in Christ, but what we might consider self-righteousness. Remember what we confessed aloud in Isaiah 64? We all have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds, this is our righteousness, this is our righteousness. If we think because uh, uh, we've sinned, we can pay God back. We can earn, we can be a good person and get our way back. He says all of your righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Our righteousness in thinking that we can come, that we can put together a righteousness before God that would be acceptable to him, that is filthy rags. That is the righteousness that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of. A a fraudulent righteousness, a hypocritical righteousness, an external righteousness. Jesus said, Unless you have a righteousness greater than the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. These people, Jesus said, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And Jesus himself, throughout his ministry, he exposed that kind of false righteousness. It's why the world hated him. It's why the Jews were plotting to kill him. And now that Jesus having exposed the hypocrisy and the false righteousness of the religious leaders, now that he was going back to heaven, he would send the Holy Spirit to carry on that 
conviction of false righteousness through the ministry of his spirit-indwelt apostles. And that preaching, through that preaching, the spirit would also convict the world of judgment. That is the wrong judgment that they had made of who Jesus was. They had made a very wrong judgment about Jesus. They condemned the Son of God himself as a demon-possessed rebel who deserved to be killed as an enemy of God's people. Right? The last, the last part of that message in Acts chapter 2, before it says that they were cut to the heart, the last part of that message is, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He's the Lord and the Christ, and you killed him. Uh, the sermon began in Acts chapter 2 with these words. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. Here's the wrong judgment. Here's the judgment that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This righteous Messiah who was attested to you, God showed his hand on him with all the mighty works and wonders and signs that he did, and you condemned him as a lawless man. That false judgment of Jesus has been authored and instigated by the devil himself, the ruler of this world. But in his death and resurrection, Jesus has bound that strong man. He has put to open shame the rulers and authorities devoted to Satan. And so all those who follow along, who join Satan in that wrong judgment about Jesus, they also are confronted by the spirit that they are going in the path of the devil who's already been condemned. Do you see what a thoroughly gracious work this ministry of the Spirit is. Without it, without Him, we would still be dead in our sins and our transgressions. Do you understand that to be true of yourself, Christians? The cru this, this Jesus that we have sung of, this, this wonderful, merciful Savior, this precious Lamb of God who laid down His life, this victorious Savior, who has risen from the grave to show that the payment for sin and the guilt of sin is over for all those who repent and believe. He would be worthless and foolish to you if the Holy Spirit had not made you alive in Christ. We would be dead. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. If you are alive today, if you have eyes to see that in Christ you are justified before God by his grace and an heir according to the hope of eternal life, you have come to see that because the Holy Spirit made you alive when you were dead. Praise the Lord indeed. You would not know him. This is how we got saved, because Jesus chose to go away and send the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. 
you know he's still in the work of doing that. So I'm glad that you're praising him for what he's done for you. Well, we have an ongoing need for conviction, don't we? Jesus taught his disciples to pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. If we're to pray that in an ongoing way, then surely we need the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit to help us see the sins that we need to confess and ask to be forgiven of. The Holy Spirit is still among us, engaging in this work of conviction. Have you prayed that recently? Holy Spirit, would you convict me of where I'm, I'm astray, of where I'm not thinking rightly about you? We can pray this prayer of King David. David was a man after God's own heart. We know he was not a perfect man. He was a man after God's own heart. And at the end of Psalm 139, he prayed, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I want to encourage you, Christian brothers and sisters, to pray that prayer. Pray that prayer today. Make that prayer your own. And this week, or maybe after the service, talk to another brother and sister right here in this auditorium. Talk to someone else about what the Holy Spirit is showing you. As you pray, see if there be any grievous way in me, Holy Spirit, and lead me in the way everlasting. If you're here this morning and you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, uh, we are very thankful that you're here. And we want you to know that we are praying that the Holy Spirit would do this convicting work in you. That is our hope, actually. That is why we speak, whether it's me up here or Jason up here or Jeff up here. This is why we speak boldly to you and appeal to you to repent of your sin and be reconciled to God. Because we believe fundamentally what you really need is not a little bit more information. You don't need to just have that one big question answered and then it would all fall into piece, uh, place for you. If you have questions, we are happy to engage with you about that. But fundamentally, you don't need one more little piece of information to solve it all for you. You don't need to see a video highlight reel. You don't need Jesus physically among you doing all the miracles that he did in the first century. The vast majority of the people who had Jesus among them and saw all those miracles, they rejected him and they crucified him. No, we understand that what you need, not a little bit of information, not a little bit of a, a miracle that Jesus would work physically among you, but you need the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. And we believe that he brings that power even as the good news of Jesus is proclaimed. Uh, have you been experiencing even a little bit of conviction this morning that perhaps you've been wrong about yourself, that maybe life is not mainly about you, but is about calling attention to the one who made you and who's giving you life and breath and everything, even at this moment? Are you starting to maybe grasp that maybe you're wrong about your own righteousness, that being a good person is about as worthless in God's sight as a used menstrual cloth? That is the image. I know that just got somebody's ears attention, but like that is the image in Isaiah 64. He's talking, when he talks about polluted garments, he's talking about a used menstrual cloth. That's your righteousness before a holy God. Are you starting to be aware of that? That you've been wrong, perhaps, about Jesus, thinking that he's an absent or non-existent deity 
or a petty tyrant or a useless dead crutch for weak and gullible people. If you're beginning to experience some of that conviction, maybe I've been wrong. We have wonderful news for you. And that is that Jesus Christ came. Before he came to be the instrument of bringing God's judgment into the world, he came 2,000 years ago to bear judgment on behalf of all those who would see their sin, who would be convicted over their sin and confess their sin and turn to God, who would agree with him in his assessment of sin and righteousness and judgment and who would flee to Jesus for cleansing and pardon. We would urge you to do that today. If you have questions, we will happily talk with you about your questions. We'd love to, to get to know you better, help you process things. But we, we believe that the Lord has brought you here, that you might hear this good news. And we trust that the Holy Spirit will work among us to help you see that need. If you are, don't push that aside for another day. Don't, don't think you'll get to that next week or next month. Today, act on that conviction. Speak to myself. I know I'm loud up here. I, I'm very, very quiet when you come to me after the service. I will not yell at you. I promise. Talk to me. Talk to somebody else who's with you if you're experiencing some of that conviction. A Christian, brothers and sisters, this is really good news for us, not just because it's how we got saved, but doesn't this give us great confidence as we seek to go out and speak the good news, both in our neighborhoods and to the, all the nations of the earth? It is the Spirit who gives life. That is a great hope. That's one of my favorite verses. You want to love me and encourage me any Sunday morning at 9.55, you just come up to me and say, Larry, it is the Spirit who gives life. You know the next verse, or the next phrase in that verse says, this is in, that's John 6.63, 6, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. And you will serve me well if you just remind me at 9.55 or some other time Sunday morning, Larry, your flesh, you in yourself, you profit nothing. It is the Spirit who gives life. That's not just good news for preachers who stand up. It's, it's for all of us preaching His Word as we go out from this building, in our neighborhoods and in our fitness centers and wherever we go unto the ends of the earth. The Spirit of God is mightily active among and through His people to convict sinners and bring them to repentance in fulfillment of that promise that Jesus made in John chapter 16, even among His most hostile enemies. The saying is trustworthy. Listen, listen to one malicious, hateful enemy whose heart was changed. His name is the Apostle Paul. Listen to his testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1. The saying is trustworthy. And deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Right? You know his story. He was a murder. He was going around sanctioning the murder, hunting down Christians to kill them and arrest them. But he says, but I received mercy for this reason. That in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. God saved Paul to make him an example. And an example of the Holy Spirit's power to give life to the spiritually dead. There is no hopeless case, brother or sister, with the Holy Spirit on the job. Is there anyone lately that you've stopped praying for? Is there, is there anyone whose conversion 
you have functionally given up on? Brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Be humble, be gentle, be respectful, but be very bold and unashamed. The Holy Spirit can give new hearts and new eyes and new life. So keep praying, beloved, and keep proclaiming him. And do not lose heart over those lost causes as you see it. Believe in the Holy Spirit's mighty power. He is active in the world. And he is active in his church through the apostles. He is speaking in his church. That's our second point. Will not be quite as long. I don't think. Verse 12, look at verses 12 to 15 again. The Holy Spirit is speaking in the church through his apostles. Jesus says in verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now again, an awful lot packed in there. We see in these verses the unity of mission and purpose within the members of the Trinity. Right? We see there that the Holy Spirit is not working independently. He's not doing his own thing, but he's simply speaking what he's heard from Jesus. He's taking the truth of Jesus, which has come from the Father himself, and he's declaring it to the apostles. We're told there that the Spirit is going to guide the apostles into all the truth. And this is of immense benefit. This has been an immense blessing to you because in his guiding his apostles into all the truth, we have received the immeasurable blessing that we call the New Testament. You're looking at me like you're puzzled. Would you like me to explain that a little bit more, I guess? That's what you're communicating to me with your eyes. When the Holy Spirit was poured out on his disciples on the day of Pentecost, they did not only proclaim Jesus boldly, as we saw earlier from Acts chapter 2, but in time, their public witness also took the form of words that they wrote down in books and letters which proclaimed Jesus' saving work and the fruits of that saving work in the lives of Christians and churches. The Holy Spirit would guide them into all the things to come. And those things to come refer to the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the Spirit, which we read about in letters like Paul wrote to the Romans or the Ephesians, and the things to come in the far distant future as we read about in the book of Revelation or the book of 2 Thessalonians or 2 Peter. This promise that Jesus would guide his first disciples into all the truth, declaring things to come and glorifying Jesus, this promise is the foundation of the confidence that we have in the inspiration and the authority of the New Testament. Why should we trust these books that we find in our Bible where it says, as that page that says the New Testament? Why would we believe that those are the books? You know, those disciples, right, you've read about them. We've seen little glimpses in John and if you've read the Bible, you know those, those disciples, as they were following him, they were kind of clueless sometimes. They, they were constantly misunderstanding and getting things wrong. 
Why would we have confidence that these same disciples who, I mean, Jesus called Peter Satan one time. Why would we have confidence that they got it right? Because Jesus made a promise that they would remember, that his disciples would remember chapter 14, 26, all that he had taught them and that he would guide them into all the truth. And he did that. Jesus did not just roll the dice. He didn't just hope his disciples would remember the right stuff and that it would click for them. He sent the Holy Spirit to ensure that all the Father's message in Christ would be remembered and would be recorded and would be declared to his people throughout the world and throughout history. So we have been the beneficiaries of of Jesus going and sending the Spirit because we have the New Testament to read and profit from. And, and one thing that that means practically is that if you want more of the activity and working of the Holy Spirit in your life, you should not be looking around for some kind of mystical, ecstatic experience or revelation or insight apart from Scripture, but you should be looking to Scripture itself. If you want more of the Spirit's fullness and power in your life, read more of the words that he's inspired that bear witness to Jesus, which is what we find in the New Testament. I want to free you this morning, brothers and sisters, that when you are talking to people, you do not need to feel burdened to say to people in order to justify some kind of direction or sense that you have, I feel like the Spirit is saying to me. You don't have to say that. In fact, if you say, I feel the Spirit is saying, really the next thing out of your mouth should be Scripture or some very clear statement or explanation or paraphrase of Scripture. And at that point, you could take the word feel out of it. You could just say, the Spirit is telling me in the midst of some trial that this is going to work for my good because by His grace, He has called me according to His purpose And I have come to love him by his grace. And so I know this will work for my good. The Spirit's saying to me that. You don't have to feel that. That, That's not about feelings. The Spirit said that. If you're feeling compelled to say, I feel the Spirit is saying, you're probably just thinking about some idea or thought that you have. And hopefully it's informed by months or years of you reading scripture and praying and seeking fellowship and accountability and encouragement from others and growing in your, in your holiness. But understand, the Holy Spirit doesn't lead away from the scriptures. He leads by pointing you into the scriptures. To be more filled with the Spirit means to be more satisfied with what the Holy Spirit has said authoritatively for all time in his word that does not change and is not subject to your feelings. And that's good news. I'm not saying that to threaten you. I'm saying it because it's really liberating. I'm not sure that you sense it as liberating, but I will move on. Do you see why this is for our good? That Jesus would go away and send the Spirit? If he hadn't done that, we wouldn't profit from the Gospel of John. Imagine a world without John 3.16. Imagine a world without Romans 8.28. But because Jesus went and he sent the Holy Spirit to guide his apostles into all the truth. We have God's life-giving word and every other rich promise that he has made to his people, all those promises which are summed up and fulfilled in Christ Jesus. 
Do you see this primary ministry of the Spirit mentioned there in verse 14 of our text? He will glorify me. So I'm happy to spend this sermon telling you about the Holy Spirit and his ministry, that we might praise him for his activity among us. But really, I think the Holy Spirit is generally content to have all the attention going to Jesus. He will glorify me. That's what Jesus said is the Spirit's ministry. He will glorify me. Where Jesus is exalted and adored and delighted in and desired and submitted to, where the reflection of Jesus' character is increasingly being pursued, where from one degree of glory we are being transformed into the image of Jesus as we behold him, that comes from the Lord who is the Spirit, where there is more eagerness to tell the lost about the good news of Jesus, where there is a greater passion and energy to serve and build up the church that Jesus loves and died for, where all that is happening, the Spirit is powerfully active among us. And it is so much better for us in this age of waiting for the blessed hope, the great and glorious appearing of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. It is so wonderful in this season of waiting, in this season of mission, that Jesus has actually gone from us and sent the Holy Spirit to empower us and strengthen us. Not just one Jesus at one particular physical place helping people, but the Spirit of Jesus active in all the world, inside all of his people. What an immense blessing that is. You've never experienced, I think this is a statement I can make without exaggeration. You can correct me if you believe that I am wrong afterwards. I do not believe that you have ever experienced one spiritually beneficial thing in your life, ever, which the Holy Spirit himself did not accomplish in you and for you. Without the Holy Spirit, there would not be one Bible verse read or understood or enjoyed. Without the Holy Spirit, there would not be one bit of hope emerging in your heart in response to the glorious promises he's made of what is yet to come. There would not be a single desire for you even to open up your Bible. There would not be the slightest impulse to pray, at least not to pray in harmony with God's priorities and purposes. Without the Holy Spirit, there would be no humility to confess a sin to a brother or sister or ask him or her for prayer and accountability. There would be not the slightest bit of comfort and rest in knowing that your sins have been forgiven and that you are at peace with God. There would not be one drop of the experience of the felt love of God for you in Christ because it's the Holy Spirit who has poured the love of God into your hearts. Without the Holy Spirit, there'd not be one word of encouragement or rebuke received from a Christian brother or sister. There would be no unity and fellowship shared with a group of Christians in a worship service or in a small group or in a ministry meeting or in a coffee shop. There would not be one worship song or sermon that would be strengthening to your soul. There would not be one bit of conviction that a particular area of your life was displeasing to the Lord and in need of transformation. There would not be one bit of power to actually pursue that change and experience renewal. There would not be any fruit of love or joy or peace or patience or kindness, or goodness, or faithfulness, or gentleness, or self-control. There would not be one fruitful gospel conversation with a non-Christian. There would not be even a hint of desire to see a non-Christian brought to faith and repentance. There would be no counsel given or received at a time when you were vulnerable and weak and hurting. All this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
you, <laughs> okay, I'll just wrap it up. Did I, have I lifted up the spirit a little bit for you? Jeff is on me. You need to talk more about the Holy Spirit. I have tried. So ask him for more of the spirit. Luke eleven thirteen. I'll close here. Luke eleven thirteen. If you then, Jesus is Jesus talking. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Kids, you ever get a really good gift from your mom or dad? Y'all, you got a breeze going through here. Is it really that? You're really struggling that much this morning? Kids, do you ever get a really special, wonderful gift you were super excited about from your parents? Okay, I'm getting a little bit of head nodding. Your parents, they love you. They lo- I trust they love to give you gifts. They enjoy seeing you happy by giving you good gifts. But you know, Jesus said, Jesus said this. I'm not saying it. Je- I'm just telling you what Jesus said. Jesus said your parents are evil. Now, you should be very careful, kids, about how you use that word of Scripture with your parents because God's Word does call you to honor and respect them. I do not suggest that you run around telling them that they are evil, that that Jesus said they're evil. But what he's saying is if your parents who are sinful and they don't love perfectly, if they love to give you good things, how much more will our Heavenly Father who is perfect and always good and always true and always righteous, how much more will He delight to give good things to His children? And the best thing that He could give you, kids and grown-ups, the best thing that He could possibly give you is Himself. And he has done that for us now while we wait for him, while we long for his physical presence and the making of all things new. He has given us himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. Kids, he'll come to live inside of you today. If you would believe upon him, if you would confess that you're guilty, that you're a sinner, that you can't save yourself, and that you need Jesus to forgive you because he lived a perfect life for you and he died on the cross to forgive you and he rose from the dead to show that he really did that. If you confess that, kids, God will give you his Holy Spirit, the best gift ever. If you've received that gift, I hope your heart is encouraged in all that he provides for you in his faithfulness. See, we, we pray as we're gonna close in prayer now, help me now to live a life that's dependent upon your grace. Keep my heart and guard my soul from the evils that I face. You are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. Oh, great God of heaven, uh, highest heaven, right? Oh, great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. You know that prayer is not happening without the Holy Spirit. Praise God, he's come and he's in you. And so he will work in you all that is pleasing in his sight through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. I hope you love him and praise him and enjoy him with greater energy and reverence this morning. Love you, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do want to know more of the Spirit. We don't, we, I don't know that we would say we want more of the Spirit. You have filled us with your Spirit, but we want to know more of the Spirit's activity and ministry in our lives. And so, Father, we do ask for that.
we pray that as we go through this day and this next week, that we would be mindful in ways that we would have not considered before gathering together this morning. And it would be mindful of ways that he is, in fact, active among us. And that we would praise you, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for all that you have done to give us everything that we need for life and godliness. In the midst of trials, in the midst of afflictions, in the midst of our fears about proclaiming Jesus in a hostile world, in the midst of the the apathy we sometimes feel about being with your people and encouraging your people, the sluggishness that we may feel in reading our Bibles or praying, Father, would we know your Spirit's power animating us, strengthening us with every good thing that we need to glorify your holy name. We thank you for providing for us everything that we need. And we ask for you to continue your good work in us until that day when you bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. We pray for this all in his name. Amen.